Welcome to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. At First Baptist Church, our vision is to be people deeply rooted in the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, who then reach out into our neighborhood, city, and the world as we live and share the good news. Here is this week's Rooted and Reaching message from FBC Charlottetown. Well, for the first two weeks of this series, we have been in the gospel of Luke. And uh, we've looked at both the story of the birth of John the Baptist and the announcement about the birth of Jesus Christ. And this week, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, sometimes I'm asked by uh, primarily new believers, why four Gospels? Like, isn't isn't one enough? (laughs) And, I mean, the short answer is no. No, it's not. Because each of the four Gospels provides a unique perspective and vantage point on the good news of Jesus. And it's by reading all of them that we get the fullest picture of who Jesus is. And especially reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as the Synoptic Gospels. So compare, for example, Luke's writings regarding the birth of Jesus. Luke includes a lot of detail, facts, accurate historical specifics. Who was emperor at the time? Who was governor at the time? What was the social and political uh, landscape like? All of this is Luke helping his specific audience grasp the inherent gospel message that he's specifically and systematically relaying. Well, Matthew, on the other hand, he doesn't include any of that he actually includes some things that Luke doesn't. The visit of the Magi, the Holy Family's escape to Egypt. And and you see, it's not that Luke was less accurate or less informed than Matthew. It's simply that Matthew's audience was different from Luke's, the original audience. Luke is compiling an orderly account of the events. Matthew is trying to help his mainly Jewish audience Understand that, you know, all of those scriptures that you've been hearing since, they're all pointing to Jesus. Let me show you. So Luke told the nativity story largely through the eyes of Mary. Well, this week, we're going to swing the camera around, and Matthew is going to look at the same events through the eyes of Joseph. The impact on this carpenter from Nazareth when it comes to the nativity of Christ. So as we open the Gospel of Matthew, before we get to that part of the story, as a means of providing his own cultural and familial context, Matthew starts his Gospel with a concise record of Jesus' genealogy. Begins with Abraham and concludes 42 generations later with the birth of Jesus. And you and I both know that when you got to Matthew and you saw that big list, you went right down to chapter 2, okay? We all know that. But here's why we shouldn't be skipping this list of, of names. He's trying to outline, Matthew, the inarguable royal Davidic bloodline that Jesus comes from. But there's also this important nuance in there that we have to pay attention to and we have to give Matthew credit for. As the majority of that list demonstrates, if we were to read through it, it was in the Jewish patriarchal custom that we mention the father and mention the son, and then mention the father and then mention the son, who had, who had, who had, who had. 
But in five different places in 42 generations, Matthew bucks that trend and includes the names of five significant women. These were extraordinarily vital parts of Jesus' family tree as well. So this is not something to gloss over. This is something to uh, pay attention to. When you're building a case, as Matthew is, to a largely Jewish audience, that the name at the end of this genealogy is the Christ, the Messiah, it's a bold move to include the names of five women in that genealogy. It's even bolder when we consider those names. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And putting those names side by side with 42 generations of men, making them every bit as important and every bit as vital to getting through to the Messiah Jesus at the end of this list. We don't have time to explore fully uh, these biographies and the kingdom impact of these women. I do want to commend them to you um, and realize just how important it is to mention them. But these are five women in the first century and many years prior who variously suffered abuses, assaults, systemic poverty, public ridicule, indignities of all sorts. They were marginalized. They were socially shunned. And this is all coming out of events and circumstances that were completely out of their control. And that's why it's no small thing that these five women are given a place of prominence and honor in the genealogy of the Savior of the world. Matthew unapologetically includes it here. I unapologetically commend it to you this morning. And then having established that for us, given us a ton to think about there, he moves from this incredible divinely directed family tree into the birth of Jesus, starting at verse 18 of chapter 1. He dives straight into helping the reader get a picture of what had to be at the time unbelievable emotional turmoil for this man in Nazareth named Joseph. As I say, if Luke excels in sharing the details of the nativity through the eyes of Mary, Matthew is doing the same through the life and experience of Joseph. I'm going to start at verse 18 of chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
So I feel like Matthew's writing here really helps us get a feel for what Joseph is battling with inside himself at that moment. I mean, there he is, readying to be married, presumably happy at the prospect, and then his betrothed leaves town unexpectedly, quickly, with haste. She's gone for a number of months. When she does finally return to Nazareth, it becomes clearer and clearer daily. She is expecting a baby. And Joseph knows good and good and well that it's not his. So Matthew is helping us to see how Joseph's intended and preferred future, the one that he'd been dreaming about, has just gone up in flames. Not an awesome moment for Joseph. Still, when you cut him some big grace here, given what he thought he knew at the time and what most others would in all likelihood assume as well about Mary, you kind of see, yeah, that disillusionment, that disappointment, certainly understandable based on the facts that he had it on hand. But what's so interesting, so inspiring, is that as confused as he was, certainly as hurt as he was, it's clear from the text that I just read that Joseph still loves Mary very much. So much so that he, he doesn't want to see her shamed. He doesn't want to see her publicly ridiculed. He certainly doesn't want to see her put to death in accordance with God's laws. No matter how wounded he was, he still loved her. So despite the implosion of the future story that he had imagined that involved Mary and Joseph, he determines through his profound pain just to let her out of the engagement. Legally, quietly, breaking off the betrothal, which would in that culture be the equivalent of a divorce. And then, and then, she could just go. Just go somewhere. Live, live well, but not here. And then, cue the angel of the Lord. Bam! In a dream... An unnamed angel of God comes to Joseph and says, let me tell you what's actually going on here, Joseph. Here's the part of the plan that you're going to play, because this is the part of the plan that Mary is playing, and it's God's plan. Joseph, you're going to be co-parent of the Messiah. <laughs> you know how they say when you're a parent, it doesn't come with a manual? Wow. This is a true story, Joseph, the angel is saying. Mary hasn't been unfaithful to you. She is in reality a consenting servant of the Lord who really is going to give birth to the Messiah, who really is coming into this really fallen and spiritually hopeless world. And so as the angel of the Lord is filling Joseph in on all of this, the angel reminds Joseph of what the prophet Isaiah had said, and he quotes Isaiah 7.14. We see those words in uh, Matthew 1, uh, 22 and 23. 
All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we need to pay attention to that phrase that that comes uh, out of verse 22 there. To fulfill what was said. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Matthew uses that exact same phrase 12 times, if we were to read straight through his gospel. To fulfill what the Lord had said. To fulfill what the Lord had said. 12 times. Alongside at least 47 different messianic prophecies that had been or would be fulfilled by Jesus and only Jesus. And so Matthew's taking those treasured scriptures that his primary audience would know so well And he's trying to help them to see that the one that the scriptures are talking about is Jesus, Emmanuel. And see, this is a good example of what I talked about in week one, if you were here. And that is that when we read the Old Testament, anything in the Old Testament, we read it in anticipation of the New Testament. And when we're reading anything in the New Testament, we read it as a fulfillment of what was spoken in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Matthew was doing. He says, remember when Isaiah said this? Guess what? This is what's happening in your home, Joseph. So if we think that, ever think that Luke, you know, Dr. Luke is more detailed and more specific in his content, I mean, we're only 25 verses into chapter 1. And you can see the deep theological impact of Matthew's writings. But it's in verse 20 and again in verse 24 where we see the connection between our Advent theme here at first and the narrative surrounding the birth of Jesus. Because in that supernatural conversation involving the angel of God and Joseph of Nazareth, in verse 20, the angel tells Joseph not to be afraid. And if we were to read it in the New International Version, the NIV, it says, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And accordingly, in verse 24, Joseph heeds that instruction. He's obedient to God. He does the socially improbable and gossip-inflaming act of taking Mary home to be his wife. Home. Logic alone would suggest that whatever Joseph imagined his home life was going to be, (laughs) going forward, things just got really complicated for him. The entire rest of his life, in fact, was going to be radically different than anything he could ever have imagined or prepared himself for. Joseph is now in a place where he has to come to terms with the reality that he is co-parent to God Almighty. And he and his wife, Mary, in just a few months, will be feeding, changing, bathing, loving, and raising God in human form. See, Joseph's future story did not include God incarnate living and growing up in his house. But that's what he's faced with. And that's what he is signing up for willingly. And as we come to the end of chapter 1, we see Matthew summing all that we've come to know and expect about the, the, the birth narrative of Jesus. But he does it with just a few words. 
few words about Mary giving birth to a son, how Joseph gave the child the name Jesus. There's no Herod the king. There's no Bethlehem mentioned. There's no shepherds. Just a notation. She had a baby and Joseph called him Jesus. Why was that detail important? So according to Jewish cultural tradition involving the firstborn son of an Israelite woman, according to religious custom, normally the firstborn son would not be named until day eight at the ceremony of circumcision. And as we encountered when we read about John the Baptist's birth, the boy is typically going to be named for the father. That's a role that Joseph was willingly shouldering in service to God. But as we saw, both Joseph and Mary, his wife, had been plainly told by the angel to name Mary's firstborn son, Jesus. So, pretty hard to imagine they're going to do anything other than that at this point. Verse 21, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. And just four verses later, we have Matthew confirming in verse 25 that he, Joseph, called his name Jesus. So the cultural tradition gets observed but so was their obedience to God's directive to them. Now, let's bring that all back to this concept of a theology of home. And one thought stems from the nativity story and the content that Matthew includes. And that is that Joseph is described as being a just man. Just. Again, in the NIV and other translations, he's described as a righteous man. Both words simply suggest somebody who was zealous about keeping the law of God. Joseph was serious about keeping the law of God. But fair to say that Joseph's existing understanding of living a righteous life under God just shifted monumentally. (laughs) It moved from being 100% about ritualism and routine and process to 100% intimate family relationship. Joseph and God living together in the same home, possibly for several decades after that. You learn a lot about someone when they're in the next bedroom from you for 20 years. God made it so that Joseph's home stopped being just the place where he ate, just the place where he slept, just the place where he kept his stuff. Joseph's home becomes the real holy of holies. Remember that place in the temple behind the curtain where the the essence of God uh, was self-limited to and where the priest would only go once a year? Now, The Holy of Holies is 100% in the carpenter's house down the street. And I think that's something that we see God doing over and over again and that we need to, I guess, give him thanks for. He takes the utterly ordinary and he makes it extraordinary. God takes things, he takes people too, of course, that society might overlook, that society might pass by, that society might decide are not godly, and God makes them godly. Mary gave birth to the Savior, 
And as the community whispered and chattered about the origins of the baby, there was more holiness in her, in her home, in her life, than any of those pious, judgmental people could ever grasp. Salvation came into the world as a baby. A carpenter's shop became the place that the Son of God would grow and develop. Joseph's home was a place where it all resided, where holiness lived. For years, I mean, think about this. For years, people would stroll past Joseph's place on their way to wherever they were going, maybe synagogue, where they would go and they would cry out to God to forgive them and to accept them and to save them. And the entire time, completely unaware that God was doing that exact thing just down the street in a revised holy of holies, the otherwise unremarkable home of Joseph of Nazareth. Well, when it comes to applying these things that I'm drawing out of Scripture this morning, there's some key elements, I think, for us to consider. To start, we need to really drill down on the selfless obedience and submission of Joseph to the will of God, no matter what it cost him. And then we should aspire to the same conviction in our own homes. Look at the way that Joseph trusts God and he goes ahead first, bringing Mary home to be his wife, and then serving as an eventual co-parent with her to the Christ of God. Now, relax, because you're never going to have that same situation face you. No one had before Mary and no one has since or will. But we're going to have stuff in our lives. We're going to have circumstances. We're going to have events that we struggle to make sense of, that we struggle to come to terms with how God can possibly use this and or allow this. But as the angel said to Joseph, don't be afraid. If confused, disillusioned maybe, are words that would describe the place that you're in right now, I would simply say just cry out to God, trust fully in a God who is good all the time, and then walk forward in faith, however that looks. Also, I think we can look at Joseph's home and his life, and we can see what was foundational for him. God was at work And God already knew what was going to happen. It was his plan from Genesis 3.15. Mary knew what was going to happen. Joseph knew what was going to happen. I guess we can add Zechariah and Elizabeth to that who knew what was happening. But it's possible that that's all. And yet that was enough. What What if we truly desired and then intentionally pursued a Joseph level of assurance that whether or not anyone else understands your service to the Lord, that you'll keep serving with whatever you have, everything you have. But beyond all of this, and in light of Christmas, I would say look intentionally to Jesus. Look who he is, look at what he's done He's the only son of God, and he wants to be your Lord today and every day to come. When we do that, 
A brand new life begins because salvation has come to us. The kingdom is here and you have a home prepared in it by Jesus. And so when a person, any person, willingly replaces their future story with God's future story for them, like we see Joseph doing, and Mary for that matter, that's when the angels sing glory in the highest. Another child of God has come home. We're actually going to sing those words in just a few moments. But let, let me end with an, uh, one invitation as the worship team readies to lead us in songs of response this morning. We've uh, re-implemented a ministry of prayer following Sunday services here at First. Pastor Andrew and members uh, in rotation of our pastoral care team and our deacons teams are regularly now going to be available following worship to pray with you. It might be, as I've just hinted at, a prayer of salvation. If today you've decided to follow Jesus, it also might be a a prayer of strength to carry on in your faith journey when it feels constantly uphill all the way. Look, whatever the immediate concern is that you're carrying, whether it's for yourself or whether it's for someone else, choose today to not take that burden back to your home. Take everything to God in prayer. We're going to conclude the four weeks of Advent next Sunday, returning to the Gospel of Luke, looking closer at how Luke talks about the journey to Bethlehem, why he includes the details that he does, and how this idea of homecoming brings it all together for us this year here at First. You've been listening to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a weekly ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. Our theme music is inspired by Ben Sound. For more information or to support the ministries of FBC Charlottetown, please visit our website, myfbc.ca, today. If you found the content of today's podcast encouraging, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop us a comment. In addition, consider sharing today's Rooted and Reaching podcast with at least one other person this week who might be blessed through it or become better biblically rooted through it. Until next time, thank you for listening.